Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people to discuss photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. Today, I'm joined by none other than Moose Peterson, American wildlife, aviation, landscape photographer, and author. Moose has dedicated his life to educating and protecting America's wildlife through his photography, winning the John Muir Conservation Award for his efforts as an endangered species advocate. He was also the creative producer and photographer on the film Warbirds and the Men Who Flew Them, which tells the story of the Texas Flying Legends Museum through their squadron of World War II warbirds. Moose is the author of 29 books, including Takeoff, a book that teaches readers how to create photographs of aircraft, and the bestseller Captured, The Ultimate Guide to Wildlife Photography. He's a Nikon Legends Behind the Lens, a Nikon ambassador, and one of the first wildlife photographers to fully embrace digital cameras in his work. And so now, without further ado, here's Moose. Moose, great to have you on the show. Richard, thanks for the invite. I, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. First, I have to ask, where did the name Moose come from? I know that's not your real name. Where did it come from and how did you end up with Moose? That's actually a common question. In fact, it's been asked to me since uh, basically day one. Uh, it was my dad's best friend in World War II. Nothing other than just that. And back then, that was a very common name. Wow. I, I thought maybe it had something to do with Bruce. Bruce and Moose, and that's a better story. My mom was never a real big fan of the name Moose. Uh, so my mom or my aunts uh, never used it. Uh, I was always Brucey. And uh, well, you know, not really what I wanted to go by. <laughs> I would prefer Moose. But you, uh, I had a lady once call the office and uh, wonder what the B stood for. And we told her bull. And she thought that was the best answer. That's a clever answer. I'll give you that. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, the house was in Southern California, but uh, I wasn't there that much. Spent your time up in the mountains? Uh, my dad made sure that I uh, experienced a lot of things in life. So between the uh, the condo down in San Diego on Mission Bay and the cabin up in Mammoth Lakes, uh, I was not around much. And then, oh, I guess starting nine or 10 years old, uh, my dad and I, we did about 500 miles a year uh, in the backcountry with packs on our back. So the house uh, was uh, where the stuff stayed more than I did. And you're in Montana now. We're in Montana. Yep. We, uh, we finished the migration, as we like to say. <laughs> great landscapes, great wildlife. And we were talking a little bit before the show about the fly fishing in, in Montana. So I'm a, a bit jealous. All those things are good. There's a lot of critters here. Um, at the ranch, we've got 67 species of birds so far. And we've lost, I think, every nesting box but one's in, in use. So I don't really leave the house much unless I'm going off to do a project. Those um, backpacking trips you mentioned, any formative experience in your, your, your young mooseness uh, that kind of led you down this path to outdoor wildlife photography? You know, people uh, ask that question. And, and in all honesty, it's just the way life unfolded. I uh, really love to be able to take credit or show, you know, some pointer that got me here. But 
it wasn't um, my parents, I guess you could say, try to dissuade me from being a photographer and going into that career, uh, probably as much as we tried to talk our, our boys not into going into it directly uh, for all the obvious reasons. Why did they try to dissuade you? Well, yeah. Talk about, you know, no job security. Uh, you know, that's a biggie, right? And uh, in the beginning, it's nothing but hardships. And depends how you look at it. It could be that way your entire career. So when you're, um, you know, you're growing up with uh, World War II generation and adults and friends of their your parents, you know, the track was high school, college, uh, your basic uh, stereotypical, you know, put a tie on kind of career kind of, livelihood so my parents were no different in in those aspects as any other parent of that time i've been following you for a long time by the way mostly wildlife aviation landscapes if you were to choose only one of those three and only one to photograph shoot the rest of your life which one of those three would it be it would be critters and why would that be that's just where my heart is um, nonstop, whether I have a camera in my hand or not. Sharon and I uh, spend hours sitting in uh, on our deck with our chair with the binoculars, just watching uh, the critters here at the, at the ranch, the birds. So that is just who I am. I just watching them and asking questions, why they do what they do. Uh, for example, uh, built sharing a 36 foot by 14 foot deer proof garden fence and to make it look a little more like a piece of home i put a nesting box on it maybe three weeks ago and we just came back from alaska to find a house wren nesting in it already now what's amazing to me is uh all the time we've been here we've never seen or heard a house wren or any other wren Yet within, to us, within days of putting that nesting box up, one finds our little piece of paradise and finds that box and says, oh, um, by the way, uh, Mrs. Wren, come with me. Uh, I want to make a, a home here. How does that happen? Because it's just like those questions just fascinate me. Looking back on your career, what, what role did endangered species play in your photography career? They were kind of everything, uh, everything from a subject to point the lens at to mentors to giving, a, a, I guess you could say, a, a direction, a purpose to our photography. A lot of people get in photography for many reasons. Um, fame and fortune was never one for Sharon and I. I'm a fourth generation Californian and grew up on stories of like my mom talking about seeing California condors flying over her high school when she was a kid, things like that. And that all disappearing uh, in our lifetime. I uh, just, uh, I didn't think was uh, right that our, that those critters should disappear. So I turned to the camera and storytelling and very fortunately, uh, or putting you behind the eight ball, however you want to look at it, uh, literally, my very first article, uh, text photo package ever published, was on a critter that was also listed the same month the article came out. And long story short, got a call and said that that article probably saved that species from extinction. And that wow. pretty well um, 
you know, put the nail in the coffin, the power of the photograph, the single photograph. And that has been uh, the driving force. Uh, it is to this day for Sharon and I, both uh, for critters and our, our aviation work and our work with World War II and Korea War veterans. So you see your photography is more than pretty pictures or art. You see a purpose behind it. I'm really odd. You got to understand that. You, you know, you're talking to an oddball here in many ways. So I don't um, pigeonhole what I do or how I do it or when I do it. it it's never, um, it wasn't really how I was raised. It, um, I take advantage of those things that come before me. And uh, the work ethic is something that was really pounded into my head that still follows today. So when it comes to my photographs, I put underneath the umbrella that it's got to reach heartstrings. Right. And how do you reach heartstrings? Well, yeah, there's f-stop and shutter speed and, and all that, but there's a whole lot more involved. All those little weird things that, uh, that came about in my life just kind of have wrapped up into being somewhat successful, reaching out with my photographs and grabbing people's attention and an occasion their heartstrings. You have a long career. Do you feel optimistic about when you look at the endangered species, the animals we're losing each year and the, the numbers plummeting? Can we turn this around or are you as pessimistic as I am? You see the reports like we've lost since 1970, uh, over 50% of all the critters on the planet, as in numbers, not species, but quantity. We've lost 50%. Um, that's pretty disheartening uh, when... I go to a lot of places I've gone to for decades and critters aren't the same, the same numbers. They don't have the same, you know, they, everything about them is, is evolving and changing. So pessimistic. Yeah. That's probably being uh, generous. Uh, it's to me downright depressing, especially with all that is going on in the world. It's going to be, I just don't see where people have, with all that is pounding their day-to-day -day time to think about or do something about our wild heritage. That's 50% since 1970. And I remember 1970. It's, this is not like some abstract date, you know, way back into the in, in the past that uh, that doesn't connect with me. I remember 1970. It's not that long ago. Um, I remember it as well. I had a, a seventh grade science teacher that, <laughs> you know, she pretty much, you know, kind of like said, hey, you know, the warning bells now. And, and to me, 52 years ago, starting this and all the things that we have done over the decades, and while we can't stop by any stretch, we have to keep moving forward. The fact that seven extinct species are in my image file, my library, um, to me is very depressing. That should never have occurred as far as I'm concerned on our watch. And I don't see uh, when you think of all the uh, craziness that goes on, it's just uh, it's just nuts. I've been following you since the 1990s. Yes, I go back that far. I used to shoot Nikon. You were a, uh, a valuable resource to me when it came to equipment and uh, an inspiration with your photos. Um, but it seems just recently, relatively recently, you've start, started taking up aviation photography. Um, what motivated you to... Take your lens in that direction. Well, I appreciate you pointing out that I'm old, uh, but uh, you know that's I'm right there with you. Part. I'm right there with that's, you, buddy. Yeah, it's part of it. Um, like I mentioned, my father was uh, in the Air Force World War II in Korea, and 
And uh, just as much as we went and saw and experienced the backcountry, the Sierra and things like that, we also did things like the air show, like a lot of World War II vets. He didn't talk about much about his experience, saw some of the photographs. Uh, my dad and most of the family uh, are shutterbuggers. They, you know, that's, they, um, that's how they captured their memories and shared them. But um, when the D3 came out, a good friend of mine with Nikon MPS was at the Reno Air Races. And back at the time, we lived in Mammoth Lakes, just a three-hour drive away. And I kind of said, hey, you know, if uh, I'll volunteer my time if you can like get me in as a photographer. And he did, and I did, and instantly was hooked on the photography aspect of aviation. You have planes at Reno 40, 50 feet away, you're doing 400 miles an hour. You can't help but get swept up in it. The thing that um, me being me, I instantly kind of had uh, an an air-to-air, that uh, my second one. And we were only up for 18 minutes photographing a Mustang. But in those 18 minutes, I ended up making $5,000 in sale prints, uh, print sales. So uh, as I like to tell a lot of people, there's not a rock or a rabbit that's going to pay me $5,000 for 18 minutes of my time. And uh, I am a, a true American, and I believe in the capitalistic system. So, you know, uh, it got my attention. And it just kept growing. And I like anything else that I've done, it just unfolded. Uh, I, it, I couldn't plan it. I, I, even if I tried to plan it, it wouldn't have turned out as well as it did. It just one of those things. And it just works in when there's a lot of great critters to photograph. There's not much going on with the aviation. And where there's not mm-hmm. many critters to be photographed, there's a ton of aviation. And it, it, it just... It, for us, just grooved in. And my wife, her dad was uh, in World War II, the last line engineer for the B-25 in Kansas City. And then after that, came to Downey, California, where he worked on things like the B-1B and the space shuttle. So it's not like aviation is a far stretch for our family history either. I guess that's the inspiration for the the documentary film you did, Warbirds and the Men Who Flew Them. That was part of it, yeah. Uh, also, just trying to find a vehicle in which to reach out. The uh, it was, you know, it, it, like so many other people and so many other things. COVID really took the wind out of the sail of doing that, and we've lost a number of World War II vets uh, mm-hmm. over those two years because they're they're all hitting, you know, triple digits at this point. They're getting old and we don't have that many left. So I was very fortunate then because out of that uh, documentary, I want to say only, uh, I can only think of one vet that we interviewed in that documentary that's still with us. And how long ago was that? Oh, God, we shot the documentary five years ago now. Yeah. I remember reading something about you and your sons pulling an old C-47 out of Florida swamp, uh, the restore and flying it to Normandy or something like that. Love to hear that story. That's like a lot of projects. Since day one, I've gone after different projects, things that critters or whatever uh, inspire or intrigue me. Some of those projects turn out and finish and with a nice big bow and a paycheck at the end. Some of them Go up in glorious flames. The project you're talking about um, 
was down in Florida, and it was a C-47 that, in its history, was the lead aircraft in Operation Varsity in World War II. Like a lot of C-47s, came back to the States, went to a DC-3, which is a civilian version of the plane, and then was a mosquito sprayer in Florida for decades. At that point, uh, a gentleman found the aircraft, was uh, then bringing it back to its original C-47 configuration with the goal of for the 75th, 75th uh, Normandy invasion uh, celebration, was going to fly it with the other aircraft across the Pacific and to England for that, that um, whole event. Plane never made it. Um, basically, oh. they ran out of money. We spent uh, three years, uh, Brent and I, filming it, video and stills, literally, you know, and the time and the money going down to Florida and and every month and, and recording all that. Basically, uh, it just sits on a hard drive now, which is, you know, that happens with projects. Right. The side of photography a lot of people don't see is how many times we go out, you know what I'm talking about, and with these goals, and something comes up, and it could be as simple as COVID, could be as complex as no money, and um, project doesn't get the finish you want. So that was a, 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 a documentary that we had grand hopes for and didn't go anywhere. Yeah, so your, your sons were involved in that, and at least one of them is involved in photography, if, if not both of them? Both of them are, yep. Um, our youngest... You'll like this. He uh, just putting the finishing touches on his documentary. He and, he and his friend uh, walked the entire 100 miles of the Madison River and fly fished it and did a documentary of uh, the river uh, fly fishing and the life on that river. And uh, our oldest son, Brent, yeah, he uh, he's a video guy. He does uh, a, a ton of work. Uh, and I don't know where, how he gets it all done. He's uh they're both kind of like chips off the old block there. They they cram a lot into a day. So he's a videographer and editor, and he is strictly doing aviation. And that is that is his life and passion. So what, what kind of advice did you give them when they decided to, to follow in your footsteps? Did you go the route of your parents with you, or did you encourage them? Or how did you approach them getting into the business? Well, just like me, our family doesn't work like you might think a lot of families might. We never had like a sit-down, heart-to-heart conversation. Uh, both the boys grew up in this business. Uh, they they spent their entire K-12 through experience being pulled out of school more days than was legal in California, going out in the field, working with um, all these endangered critters. And they got an education working with these, you know, biologists and research and stuff that was unequal. So they already saw both sides of that. They, they saw um, all the fun, all the glory. They saw all the frustration and the uh, heartbreak. So it wasn't like we had to list it to them. Uh, they just, they both, you know, went to college and did the college thing. And yeah, they, they, they're both really talented shooters and I, I really don't know what clicked in them to decide that, you know, that was how they wanted to uh, share their life. They just did. But I never sat down and said, no, you can't or things like 
my dad was a little more uh, brutal about it, I guess you could say, and what a mistake it was. They just had learned from life experiences. That's good. So I'm a 24-year-old. I just purchased my first camera, first telephoto lens. Uh, animals and photography become my passion and conservation. I want to be a photographer. What's the most important thing I need to accomplish over the next six months? To be honest, if you don't already have the passion for it in six months, what can you accomplish? Because without that passion, you won't make it through the valleys as you you know come down from that peak. And that's really important. There are it's not a, a job of fame and fortune or great security. So you have to figure out your way in the world. And one of the ways you figure that out is uh, not listen to a lot of advice that you might read or see. You have to you have to follow your own path. That's a great point. I remember the advice I got when I was starting out, and most of it was wrong. But it was mostly just my own passion and curiosity that. I just followed that path to learning on my own and reading as much as I could. And uh, in retrospect, now, when I look back at some of the things people told me, they were completely wrong. I didn't know it at the time, but they were wrong. I was like, you know, I keep saying over and over again, I was very fortunate. I had a, a high school um, photography teacher and uh, he was, you know, you get older, you look back and reflect on things you realize how wise some people were that at the time you thought were not so wise. And um, he was really, uh, he drummed a lot of things into my head that not until years later did they start to come out and go, oh, that, you know, that was really smart. And my senior year in high school, I won every single award possible in, in LA County. Uh, from the LA County Fair, you know, I just, I just kind of cleaned up trophies and medals. And he gave me a C for that um, semester. And I was like, uh, uh, hello, time out. I I've got all these trophies and awards and uh, accolades, and I got a C in the class. And he said, yeah, you didn't take it seriously um, and put your heart into it. You were just into it for the awards. So you get a C. And um, things like that kind of resonated and it makes sense. And it, it uh, was a quick lesson in life that, you know, the, uh, the short-term awards people go for don't begin to sustain a long-term career in photography. And that must have stuck because I know you do a lot of research and I know you do a lot of reading about your subjects and about photography. I know that by following you. So he hammered home a point and it stuck, didn't it? It did. Yeah, I do like to read. Um, my poor boys, they got stuck with a real history buff of a dad. And when they're growing up, they weren't so uh, all that book reading. Now they're both bookworms. Uh, <laughs> my dad was a bookworm and uh, uh, reading about the in, in that knowledge, no matter what it, it's about, uh, can do nothing but uh, enlarge your world. And as a photographer, the the bigger and grander you see the world, the, the bigger the palette you have to photograph. What is your mindset when you go out to do photography? Usually, let's say it's wildlife. Do you have a plan or a goal or you're just trying to clear your mind to be receptive to something inspiring you? We're talking about today or in the past because it, it evolves and changes. 
No, you, you've referred to self-assignments in the past as that's a that's a a plan, a goal for a specific purpose. And I know some people just go out and wait for something to inspire them. There's two different different paths there. Well, when it comes to that, yeah, I've always determined my own path. I've always gone after those things that intrigued me or interested me, not um, necessarily because they were going to uh, turn a buck, but because it's just a question I had from my reading, my research, my conversations, and I just chased them. There's very, um, you know, I've, I've never... To this day, I've never had a magazine editor say, uh, Moose, go out and photograph this. We need X amount of photographs, X amount of you know, pages, and we're going to pay you X amount of dollars. That, to my career, still has never occurred. Everything is self-generated. But to the other question, when I go out today to shoot, it's totally different than 40 years ago. And How's that? The, well, you know, the um, the photographers can put a hell of a lot of pressure on themselves. They can, and I still see it today, and I try to, to curb it just from my own experiences, but we put pressure on ourselves to, to make that one photograph or to um, go all out to get that series of photographs. When, when you do that, it's what I, I simply call a forced image, and it looks like you're pushing something to happen when really it's not. And... Until you, at least as far as I'm concerned, let all that shutter speed, f-stop stuff go away and you just click that follows your heart, it's hard to um, just, like I go out today, and stand for hours and just take it in. I just back from 10 days at, up on Kodiak Island with brown bears. And seriously, we would stand there with ankle high water on the grass flats, four or five hours, not taking a single picture. You're just watching and people just doing that drives them nuts. And it's, and that comes back to my basic training with biologists and understanding that we have to stand there and the critters have to get used to the fact that there's something new and different there because there's not people there, you know, most of the time. And then once they're used to it, they just go about their their daily routine, and that's where the photographs come. So that pressure you you talked about with some of the photographers today, that pressure to create that image or to come back from a trip with, um, you know, a plus images. How much of a role do you think social media plays in that in creating that pressure? Well, I don't know if. Uh, I, I, I probably, maybe some, um, I have no doubt just from conversations, people see images on, on social media and assume that what they're seeing is what the camera actually saw and what the click made. And, you know, FOMO is a problem and I can understand where it comes from. How do you deal with it? Uh, you know, life experiences will teach anybody and most people think that their photographs are a summation of what they know as a photographer. Very few realize that their photography is a summation as what they know as a person. Uh, so there's a there's a huge void there. And, you know, God, you could get into a whole uh, hour of uh, old sayings, but 
as you get older, you there's certain wisdom that comes to you if you let it in. And and uh, one of them is that um, what you see is not always what you should believe. And the business has changed a lot. I mean, just in 20 years. I mean, you go back 20, 25 years ago, professional photographer earned what he earned was, or, or she earned was commensurate to what he or she produced. You needed images to, to license uh, rights and for prints and books and calendars and so on and so forth. Today, it seems like you have to establish yourself as a brand and then you monetize that brand. I mean, you look at pho pro photographers or aspiring pro photographers, what do they need today to be successful as opposed to in the years past, at least in your opinion? Well, there again, I'll remind you, you're talking to a weirdo here. I don't, I don't buy the, the establish the brand stuff. Um, the photographers who I work with, and, and I have a very talented group of, of people that um, came to me very early on and said they wanted help and listened to my two cents worth. Um, my favorite um, story is Bob. And Bob is a, is a great guy. He can't write a sentence without writing three pages. Uh, you know, I kept saying, you know, Bob, we need to kind of bring this down a little bit. And if you kind of, you know, bring it down, I'll help your photography. And we went through a lot of things. And at this point, um, in just a couple of years, he's got over 20. He just got another cover for a magazine. He's got articles and stuff. And no one's going to ever know his name. He's not going to, you're not going to see him on the lecture circuit. He's not going to do books. But as a photographer uh, and, and making money, he's had no problem and he doesn't have a brand. He just has a passion. He has a very open mind and open heart to take everything in, which is essential, uh, take all that information in. And, and those things that pertain to your photography, you need to hold it dear and everything else, you need just to blow off, uh, just move forward with who you are. And, and then uh, the, probably the, the biggest thing is you go out and you knock on the doors and you ring the phones. Um, the problem I see with branding, and again, I'm old-fashioned and weird, you're hoping that you're going to throw something out there and it's going to stick. And people don't understand that most, and I live in the editorial world, so that's the only thing I can really talk about. Those editors don't have time to spend all day searching on the web, looking for photographs, hoping that what they see on that computer monitor is going to actually have a file that they can print on a magazine because a lot of stuff out there just falls apart. So it's a relationship and it's still relationships. And um, so uh, that's, that's how I work. That's how those I mentor, I have inspired them to do and, and uh, with all the success they keep having, I just, I can't believe uh, in my heart of hearts that that whole branding thing, social media is a, is a viable way to be in the business of photography. Uh, see, a lot, I talk to a lot of younger photographers now. They think that this whole editorial thing is dead. They, they don't even try to work that market at all. They think that is a relic, a thing of the past. And I feel kind of bad for them because many of the, the best lessons I've learned as a photographer, I learned from editors and photo editors and art directors who they weren't quote unquote fans or friends or followers. Um, they were telling me things that would make me a better photographer. This image is not making a big enough impact for this, for this uh, 
this this article that we're that we're trying to illustrate. Um, the best lessons I got, and there are hard lessons, but those are the ones that allow you to learn. You don't get that from social media. You know, I, I'm just just you know, I can't echo what you said enough. The uh, photo editor, the the art director, uh, I curse them and love them at the same time. Um, curse them because you know they um, they're they, they're kind of like me. They're pretty blunt. You know, they don't beat around the bush. They don't have time. Uh, and if you are wise enough when they send you that rejection, uh, the rejection letter, that's a thing of the past. But uh, if you're smart enough to ask them why, uh, they, as soon as you did that, they seem to give you a little bit of, of edge and respect. And they would tell you, and they're professionals at visual storytelling. And yeah, they very much influenced who I am today as a photographer. Uh, and I love them because they did take the time. They cared. It's really hard for people to understand that um, the photo editor or the art director, whatever label they want to use at their their magazine, they're just one of the minions. They answer to greater uh, uh, calls up above. And I would never want to be the photo editor whose phone goes, mm, publisher wants to see you. And you have to walk <laughs> up to their office and he goes, why is this photograph in my magazine? I mean, holy moly. And I, I mean, I heard that from more than one photo buyer. So it's it's not like, uh, I mean, that's a lot of pressure for those folks. Uh, photographers don't understand any of that. And, and I think, like you said, for young people, that's tragic. It's tragic. And, and the value of writing, because uh, you, you've worked with these people, you know that their most precious resource is time. They're always under some kind of deadline. Once that one deadline is done, there's another one waiting for them just a little ways down the road. The worst thing you can do is waste your time. So if you can write and do photography at the same time and submit a photo text package, you're like a savior to them. You could do both. Again, this is one of those quirks in life. The uh, I mentioned that article, my very first one that ever got published that they said saved a species from extinction. I, I worked with a, an amazing uh, editor, Dave Dick. Uh, I worked with him for a long time. Uh, worked at a magazine in Outdoor California. And he, bless his heart, he spent a lot of time with this greenhorn, a lot of time, and explained a bunch of things. And back then, uh, people don't realize it. As a photographer, you didn't do a text photo package. They didn't want text written by the photographer. They wanted somebody else. So those early days, we'd always put Sharon's name on the articles writing it. And I was the <laughs> photographer, even though I did both. And when I did my first book, the, uh, the editor or the publisher said, you know, I want your knowledge, but I want your wife to write it, which was always a <laughs> bit of joke here in the office because I wrote it. Um, but um, yeah, people, um, photographers in the editorial market, you know, ASMP rates, they haven't changed since I started in the 80s. I mean, it's the same page rate. And people go, what's a page rate? And I said, well, a quarter page is $50. And they go say, what? And I said, yeah, it's $50. I mean, a quarter page. Well, how do you make money on that? And I said, it's like, well, you don't make money from just that one. You need to dominate all the pages. And if you write the article, you slant the articles, so the illustrations have to come from your files. Then you get the whole thing, then your payday for that same period of time you spend in the office. 
it's not $50, it's $500 or, or more. And you have a couple of those a month, it starts to add up. But more importantly um, is that, and I'm not doing that much. I mean, at my heyday, I had about four or five articles per month. And there was about five or seven years that had four or five articles a month out there in print. And uh, the lessons that were taught to me, uh, grammar, not one of them, folks, you know, that I just don't take time for grammar. That's why, God bless them, editors were born um, to clean up my writing. Uh, but uh, the lessons that they all, uh, those, all those editors did over the decades are still here. They haven't gone away. You've had a longstanding relationship with Nikon. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost to the point where your your name is almost synonymous with the brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my first book was the Nikon System Handbook, so it kind of like goes with the territory. How did this relationship develop, and and what advice would you give an up and coming photographer who wants to create the same quality business relationship with a well known brand like Nikon? I'm glad you asked. It's um because it's a, it's um especially in this day and age, I don't think things like that are understood. I was like a lot of photographers. I worked at a camera store, a very unique camera store called Dell's Camera. And all they sold was Nikon gear. And the regional manager for Nikon took a shine to me. Don't know why, but he was incredibly encouraging. Uh, Would help any way he could. Uh, A 19-year-old tried to to, to make things happen. And he was very, uh, even though the stupid things I would do, he was still behind me. And you can't help but do stupid things when you're you're a photographer, uh, especially when you're young. And I did them. I did them all. Um, like I like to say, I have more faults than California. And <laughs> his loyalty is why I've always been loyal to to Nikon. That and it's flash technology. Nikon still forgives me for all my foibles to this day and supports me. I, I can't help but support anybody who does that, whether it's uh, Nikon or or anything. Um, you know, you're loyal to me. I'll, I'm loyal to you. You were one of the first, if not the first, to accept and use digital cameras for your professional wildlife work. Uh, I was, you know, as far as, yeah, the globe is concerned, I was the first digital wildlife photographer out there making money with a digital camera. So this is well more than 20 years ago. Um, 1998. 1998. I think people instinctively resist change and they, I see it a lot anyway. I think it's, it's kind of fascinating. But some people see change as a threat. Some people think it's just foolish. So I'm just kind of wondering, what kind of pushback were you getting at that time as you were heading in that direction, really the future? Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a killer question. And, and the answer is going to confuse a lot of people because they, they can't relate to it. But you'll be able to. Um, you know, back in the day when we had set our slide in, uh, it would have a delivery memo. And that delivery memo would say a number of things in it uh, the conditions in which we were loaning our images to that magazine. And the number one clause was that if anything happened to that image, you'd owe me bucks. There was one year where we actually got more, we made more money for all the damages to our slides than we got paid editorially. The worst one, one of my prized photographs of a peregrine, uh, the gorilla down the separation room, took the slide and he put a paperclip on the slide and just threw that in a FedEx envelope and returned it to us. You don't worry about those things today, but that was a big issue back then. 
And one of the main ways we got digital into a number of, of magazines was to point out that that clause and the delivery memo for $1,500 goes away because you can't hurt my original. I have it. I'm sending you a copy, which is the same as the original. And they're like, oh, really? You mean the grill the downstairs? I don't have to worry about them anymore. Uh, and that's how we got a whole lot of magazines to move to digital really fast. There's one other thing that's very important that's lost today that um, people really kind of query me about. And you'll, again, be able to relate to this, but there's two things. One is people have a hard time believing that what they see in my photograph is what I saw in the viewfinder. I don't crop and post. And that is very much old school, 35 millimeter editorial business. You couldn't send your slide to the, the photo buyer with all the silver tape on it saying, see this little mega dot right here? Yeah, that's the pick. You didn't do that. What was in the bounds of that cardboard? That was your photograph. Um, and you were and that judged was really on that. instilled to me. Remember that? Right. Yes. And that was, you know, those photo editors, they, they pounded that in my head. Um, the other thing is Kodachrome, uh, Agfachrome, what I used at the end of uh, film days, they are nowhere near as forgiving as the digital file, especially what we have today, um, which is just mind boggling as far as I'm concerned. So you had to get it right in the camera. There was no, you couldn't Photoshop an image and then put it in a cardboard mount and send it to the photo buyer. What they saw had to be the end product. It had to be your statement of not only the, the subject, and the visual storytelling, but your craftsmanship as a photographer. Um, those lessons for those first 20 years painfully pounded in my head, both by conversations and lack of a paycheck still affect everything I do as a digital photographer. You mentioned the, uh, the dynamic range. I, I tried to explain to some of my friends now who do landscape photography, because I use Velvia 50 for landscape back before I started doing digital. And I explained to them that the dynamic range of Velvia 50, I think was three and a half stops. And their brains explode. How did you possibly use that film for landscape photography? And no, you, you became a, an observer of light and shadow that I think, and I think maybe is missing today and, and some of the photographers and how they observe light and shadow. Yeah, the love of light, I think, is, is lost on most photographers these days. They don't cherish it. They don't, uh, uh, I don't want to say worship, but they don't gravitate to the great light. You know, I, I, I try to explain to photographers that in the days of film, I had this big wallet of Kodak Rattan 3x3 color correction filters that I had to use all the time and had to keep replacing them because they were fragile and stuff. And they go, why would you have those? I said, because white balance, you had got a film and you were stuck with one number. You didn't yeah. have a computer dealing with auto white balance. You couldn't just say, you know, I want 10,000 K and just like you had to pull out filters. You had to put a filter holder on. You had to, and, and then you have to worry about them, you know, and humidity and then sharpness. And, but that's what we did to get it right in the camera. Um, and I'm glad I did. Cause those images today, I would hate to think that, you know, that 320,000 conventional images I have in the files were, you know, all had to be fixed, you know, 
Yeah. It's um, it's a different mindset, and I'm I'm again very fortunate that I have this very talented core of photographers I get to work with, who kind of uh, have faith in me and 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 have been rewarded both with the subject and the file that they know that what I'm talking about actually works. It's a bit of a cliche to say you learn more from your failures than your successes. And oh, yeah. anyone who's anyone's achieved anything in life has made tons of, of mistakes and failures. So what would be your favorite failure? Oh, favorite failure. Cause gee, I keep the list of those. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess uh, there's way too many to think about. Um, everything from when I open my mouth and I shouldn't open my mouth uh, to um, things I, I said, you know, I, I need to go photograph that and I never get to it. And then it's gone. Those are failures that probably haunt me more than else that um, working with a, a particular person or uh, a critter or a locale and they disappear before I can get there. Um, it's are the failures that haunt me the most because photographically, you know, there's still, mistakes I make to this day that human thing gets in the way. So failures, uh, I try to embrace them. I try to learn from them, but you know, that memory, that's when I always mumble when I make a mistake twice. I go, I know better, but you know, there's not one like failure because there's so many Uh, there's, there's pictures I miss. I was uh, like, I was this last 10 days up there with Kodiak Browns. So one thing, you know, I've worked with with grizzly bears and black bears and brown bears for almost 30 years now. And from day one, the biologist said right off the bat that you need to constantly do a 360 every two minutes. If you've never worked with these bears, you have no idea how fast and how far they can travel in a short period of time and, and be behind you with absolutely no noise. Not that they're trying to uh, hurt you in any way. It's just they survive out of curiosity. The way they say solve their curiosity most of the time is to gum it or bite it. Uh, that is just the way they are. People don't work so well when they've been gummed or bitten by a bear. So I'm always doing a 360. And, and this last time uh, we had a, a nine-year-old female brown bear, probably about 900, 950 pounds. She was spectacular. She was just a gorgeous bear. She had three cubs. So she's a really good mom, um, and uh, the cubs were two years old. And they were just doing their thing on the grass flats. And the, the cubs, they're just as curious, if not so more than mom. And I was doing my 360, and in the old days, you could hear the camera go clack, 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 and I knew that something was happening and to, you know, after I did my quick sweep, go back to shooting. But with the Z9, you can't hear it. There's no mechanical shutter. So it's the beauty of it. All you hear is nature. Uh, if it's me and I want to know if something's going on, I have to see it. And so I missed some shots. And um, not that it's a failure, but that being comfortable with missing a shot and knowing that it's okay to miss a shot is probably the biggest failure lesson that um, I've learned. Well, what would be your definition of a successful photograph? One that makes somebody choke up. There you go. Closer to your heartstrings. Emotionally yeah, engaging. Yeah, that's kind of important. Yeah, yeah, especially with critters or planes. More so than than the how many lines per inch uh, resolution you might have at that particular time. It's got to it's got to connect with the heart. 
Yeah, that's where I think people have a hard time understanding who I am and what I do, because my general nature is I'm curious about how things work. So the Nikon Sister Handbook, my very first book, literally took apart cameras to understand how they work. And I still kind of do that. And I talk about it because it's just my curiosity and I like to share what I learn. But people think that is how I take pictures. And it's quite the opposite. So Moose, I'm going to ask you a very 21st century question. Uh-oh. What's your spirit animal? And you can't say moose. Well, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I have one, to be honest with you. I never thought about it. I told you, you it was know, a very the, 21st century question. <laughs> well, you know, I probably spend quality time with over probably 300 species of birds and mammal in a 12-month period of time. And those are the ones that most of the time, one, have my curiosity, two, have my passion, and three, I hope I could serve well with my photographs. And any critter that I've just spent time with tends to be my favorite. The two, though, that or three that really gravitate to me are, are the Kodak brown bears, grizzly bears, uh, bighorn sheep. Um, all of the varieties of North America, sheep, thin horn and thick horn. And then of course, moose all, um, if I could, they'd be where I spend most of my time. And birds aren't there because I have them here at the ranch. Uh, you can't see them, they're outside the view of the camera, but you know, just right out here is a big platform feeder and our, our even gross beaks are here as they come through for about a month each year. And so there are, there's 27 of those beauties right there. Um, and I then hear I can hear everything else going on. So birds are my everyday. I don't really travel as much to see birds anymore. That so, a spirit animal probably probably the salmon king kit fox is the one that that I long for most of anything. Oh, that's awesome, <laughs> folks! You can find Moose at his website at uh, moosepeterson.com and Instagram and Twitter at moosepeterson. Moose, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Richard. I, I, I appreciate the time and the invite, and I enjoyed it very much. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thank you to my guest, Moose Peterson, for a fascinating conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Take care and see you next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.